0: Kick it! Welcome to Best Picture This, where it is always Oscar season. I'm Mike.
1: And I'm Brian. In this show, we reevaluate every Best Picture nominee from the 21st century and decide whether to keep it or kick it from its Oscar pedestal. And we just
0: finished our 2000 season, Brian. This is great. Uh, but before we dive into 2001, we decided to welcome a guest onto the show for the very first time. And no, Brian, we're not going to phone home.
1: We're going to (laughs) phone director Aleem Hossein. Aleem, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks for having you guys. Glad to be here.
1: Thank you so much for being on the show. So for our listeners, Aleem and I went to the same tiny little high school in Connecticut called Bolton High School. He was in my older sister's grade a year or two ahead of me. And uh, since then, Aleem went off to earn an MFA at UCLA. He's now an assistant professor of digital storytelling at Occidental College in Los Angeles. And his first feature film, After We Leave, is streaming right now on Amazon Prime. It was also selected as the Best Feature Film at the London Sci-Fi Festival in 2019.
0: Very cool. So yeah, on today's show, we're going to talk to Aleem about craft, and then we will hear his top five Best Picture nominees of the 20th century. Brian and I shared our own lists uh, in the very first episode of this show, which you could hear on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And then finally, we will wrap up by discussing a Best Picture nominee of Aleem's choice. And he picked 1982's E.T., directed by steven spielberg i tripped up a little bit there on the on the spielberg i was almost gonna say soderberg for some reason but uh, i caught myself slightly different styles but let's, a hear, bit.
1: let's hear a let's hear a classic 2002 re-release trailer
3: in this quiet neighborhood <laughs> on this tranquil street A mystery is unfolding And an adventure ah! is beginning ah! again I'm keeping you In March 2002, <laughs> Steven Spielberg's masterpiece returns to theaters everywhere. Doing phone home. like you've never experienced it before with enhanced visual effects never before seen footage and a digitally remastered soundtrack next spring take the journey what are you waiting for let's go and experience the excitement as E.T. returns home to the big screen for a new generation to discover what the rest of us Ah. will never forget. (laughs) Steven Spielberg presents the 20th anniversary of Extraterrestrial.
1: You can never get enough of that voice, Don In, LaFontaine. Interesting <laughs> choice there, Brian, with the 20th anniversary trailer. I thought that might um, make you react. It, it did. It's only 20 years old, so I guess that's but, not
0: so bad. So but here's uh, why
1: I chose the 2002 version of the trailer mm-hmm. is that it, it's interesting because here we are 19 years after that. You know, this is 40 years old, this movie. So my question is, does it hold up? Aleem Hussain, does it hold up?
2: You know, this question of whether a movie holds up is, like, to me, like, a really, really fascinating one. And my my opinion about it has shifted over time. Uh, And so my answer now is yes, but that doesn't mean that I don't think there's things about that are dated. The reason I think it holds up is that I think it, like, it is a film that knew what it wanted to be. And it's, like, the very best version of that thing. I think it mm-hmm. wanted to be, like, a a combination of a really intimate film about just a few characters, but also, like, be provide more awe and, like, spectacle than, like, movies had seen up until that point. And that was, like, Spielberg's sweet spot for a long time. And I think this movie is, like, the pinnacle of that. Like, he has movies that I think are even better at spectacle and maybe better at emotion, but in terms of, like... The intimate emotion in the spectacle. I think it's the best thing he's done, um, and uh, and so I think it does hold up for that reason. I watched it with my kids pretty recently, and <laughs> they were definitely gripped by it.
1: Yeah, I think um, the the thing is um, when Spielberg re-released it in two thousand two, he did like hype up some of the uh, special effects and then afterward kind of regretted it. I thought yeah. that was yeah. kind of interesting. It doesn't need it. I, I, don't, yeah, I, don't, I don't like think when so these either.
0: directors do that. Stick with the original, because it, it works as a timepiece after a while. It does. And then it still works as a movie. I mean, to me, this yeah. totally holds it's up. It's
1: like you're embarrassed, though, that your kids watch it and say, like,
0: <laughs> oh, look at that CGI. It's <laughs> yeah. terrible. Hey, Aleem, let me ask you, how old is your kid?
2: So I have um, a six-year-old and a nine-year-old. A six and a and 9 year Yeah, and they were just, it was so interesting to see, like, watching the film with them, I realized the, like, actual, like, stakes of the movie were more visceral for them than a lot of the stuff they watch now. You know, they'll watch a Pixar movie where sometimes, like, there's supposedly as much jeopardy or stakes or problems, but I think there's, like, a realism to what Spielberg's doing, even though it's about a strange alien visiting a little boy. That, like, when E.T. was like in the hospital, you know, in the hospital, the sort of doctor scene, or like when they're being chased, you know, by just a minivan, basically, right? It's not just a huge no, Marvel <laughs> spaceship. Those moments felt scarier to them than like much larger scale and bigger spectacle moments now. And I think it has something to do with the fact, like, how actual, sort of realist he is in making the movie.
1: Yeah, totally. So we'll talk a lot more about E.T. Um, in a few minutes, but first we're going to ask some questions about your career, your craft. So I know you, I gave you these ahead of time. So, um, they, they the answers better be good. That's what I'm <laughs> saying. Don't let no, us down. Right, bring it. <laughs> so in 2019, you know, when, when your movie after we leave was released, uh, you won best director at Berlin sci-fi and then it won best feature at London sci-fi. So what does that do for your confidence as a filmmaker?
2: I, this is a really interesting way to think about those awards, what does it do for my confidence? When 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 I saw that question, the thing I realized was it does very little, actually, for my confidence as a filmmaker if I think of that question as like me just isolated, thinking about like, I want to make art or I know what I want the film to be. Because really, that question of myself and my abilities, A, I think I'm always trying to get better, but I have enough confidence like I think I know what I want to do. Where the award matters is in the big question and where I always have anxiety is, will the film find an audience? Will it be validated externally in the ways that it needs to be for me to get more opportunities to make more films? Uh, I'm someone who makes films that don't always have a huge commercial audience, but even so, I need to know that it can get that smaller audience I was aiming for. And so the, the real value of the awards was, Someone other than me or like, say, my mom saying this film <laughs> has merit. And again, that, that, what was great about that was I made this really small film that has no big movie stars. And I feel confident that it's the film I wanted to make. But will, will it have a life? And the, what the awards did was they changed the entire trajectory of that film from a film that had been rejected by a bunch of festivals. And I didn't, I couldn't find a mainstream distributor, just haven't made it. But then all of a sudden, these sci-fi film festivals embraced me. I got these awards, and that's what led to I sold the film, and it you know went on to Amazon. So that was the real impact of those awards. So I'm super grateful uh, for for the validation for that reason.
0: Well, yeah, we talk about that a lot with the Oscars, actually. Mm-hmm. You know,
1: yeah. They, you, you give look, you, they give some power to the movie they
0: give some power it's sort of the point to me anyway of, of this podcast is kind of trying to figure out if the Academy gave that power to the right movies of the year mm-hmm. you know yeah. sometimes you look at a year and you think three of these movies really feel like they shouldn't have gotten the recognition <laughs> yeah, at least three yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean we did a season in, of uh, 1999 you know and the Matrix and Fight yeah. Club got no love <laughs> and the Cider House Rules got, got the, the credit instead and
1: speaking of which Alim I need to insert this question because you have to yeah. break you have to resolve this problem that we have okay which is better fight club or the matrix
2: oh god <laughs> come on um it's just i mean <laughs> I, I think 90 the reason 99 comes up is because of that you know just like can you believe both of those are not there yeah uh i i'm gonna tell you that uh for me um i think that i think fight club if I have to say better, it's a hard thing. I think (laughs) Fight Club is better. I think The Matrix was more impactful on cinema. That's a good good answer. answer.
1: It's probably true. I just think the acting puts Fight Club, you know, ahead of The Matrix. Anyway, we'll move on to the next question. You are, uh, on your bio, you talk a lot about Augmented reality, virtual reality. So, what? And your 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 title, you know, you're, is a digital storytelling, you know, professor. So, yeah. what will the moviegoers' experience be like in ten years? Will it include virtual reality? If so, then how does that how does that happen?
2: I, I think that we are emerging from a period where, if you had asked me this question a couple of years ago. Uh, I think a lot of people, not just me, would have been suggesting things like, yeah, well, we watch movies in headsets and will like we have, you know, smell-o-vision or whatever. Like, <laughs> these sort of technical things, right? Like, And I think now that we've we've emerged from that period and I think now people are realizing that really the big, big question of the future of viewership is the idea of like the theatrical and short, distinct version of a feature film and the in-home, long-term storytelling of, like, streaming series? I think that's the big question. And I actually think that a lot of these other things that seem like they're more immersive, like virtual reality, augmented reality, are going to be big technologies in our lives. I think viewership, though, the real question I have is, 10 years from now, like, do I still go sit in a movie theater and watch a story that has a beginning and end in 90 minutes to two hours that stands on its own that I left my house to go see that I can't pause when I want to go get you know uh, another drink out of the fridge um, and that I see with other people and I feel like that is disappearing but and I have some mournfulness about that but I actually think that we're you know we're seeing like already these categories are being blurred like you know this year is the small act series of films made by Steve McQueen going to be nominated for Emmys or Oscars? Maybe both somehow. Are they films? Are they TV? I don't know. So I actually think the technological questions are dipping away largely because I think home theater stuff is getting so good that that's going to be what actually becomes the new norm. And some of these like, flashier things, which I do work in and study, I don't actually know that they're the future of the film industry. I think they are going to be adjacent technologies.
1: You know, I think that's probably true. When I asked the question, I thought you were going to say, "Oh yeah, we're going to be doing VR and AR." But <laughs> but I think that it may just be basically like a gimmick like 3D. You know, you go, yeah. it, "It might really boost a theater uh, box office uh, temporarily, but it's not really, you know, ultimately really part of the movie." Uh, but in
2: fact, there may be a future where the movie theater is the one place you go where you get to switch off your augmented reality life (laughs) and just watch one thing. It'd be funny if the movie theater becomes the cave of isolation we crave in the midst of our augmented life.
0: I mean, (laughs) honestly, that's kind of one of the reasons I like going to the movie theaters even now. You know, right now you're at home, and if I'm on the couch... So many things could happen, you know, yep. that that could be distracting and just your phone sitting next to you is kind of enough of a <laughs> distraction. When I go to the movie theater, I leave it in my
1: car. Yeah. And yeah, that's kind yeah. of freeing.
0: You you could you that's can a little full attention. That's a little too far, Mike. No, you can't leave it in I, I the car. I want no contact, Brian. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, um, next question. How Aleem, how does your technical expertise enhance your movie watching experience and how does it ruin it?
2: When I First, started my film education. There was this period, which I think of sort of like as a as a valley, as a sort of trough of viewership experience. Which was, <laughs> I was so new to learning the stuff that all I could do was see it. Thankfully, I have left that period behind, and now I would say I've been doing this. You know, I've been trying to do this for like twenty, twenty two years, twenty twenty one years uh, since I made my first film. Now I'm definitely back to the point where, like, if the film is good, uh, I don't even think about it at all. And then I think I get a benefit, which is that when I reflect back on it, I have a whole level of just that of like pleasure that I get out of just thinking about how they did certain things, both because it helps me as an artist, but also just like, I just like human ingenuity and creativity. So now I say it's only upside and it's very rare that I would say I sit in a film that I think is even decent and have the majority of my conscious thoughts be dominated by like, I wonder what lens they used or how did they pull that off or <laughs> thankfully story I think is still king in my mind though there was definitely a, early on that was not true.
1: yeah um, with that expertise, what are you doing now? Are you working on a new movie? What's next for you?
2: I at the moment speaking of the the class machine features and, and television series or whatever we want to call these streaming series, I am developing a, I'm pitching and, and sort of trying to get funded a like short limited series that is sort of a cross between an autobiographical story of my own life, sort of growing up in Connecticut, being uh, half my family is Muslim, half my family is Christian, um, and then, but combined with sort of a coming of age superhero story, uh, and it's sort of a lame as a long... superhero, <laughs> exactly. Yes, <yeah, so laughs> a, a, a very modest superhero, but yes. Yeah, and so I'm, <laughs> I ha- I've written some of that, and I'm trying to take that out. And then I'm actually in the process, as an antidote to having just finished the whole feature film that I wrote and direct directed, I'm making especially in pandemic times when i can't get out that much i'm i actually working on just two really small short experimental films that have no commercial value very little reach but are just sort of like creatively satisfying exercises and so i'm sort of balancing my like you know mass appeal commercial tv idea with these like two little short films
1: very good and do the oscars matter to you aleem they better they because you know this show but Here do I they I matter am. to they you matter.
2: as a yeah They matter a lot. There was something you guys said in uh, one of your earlier episodes, I think, where you you talked about just, like, you know, like, uh, uh, do they get it right? And and, and what we just talked about now, like, you know, what do they add to a movie? They matter a lot, but they are, like, a very mixed, painful bag for me sometimes where I feel like I love them. I love movies so much, so, of course, I'm going to love the biggest award show there is for them. And yet at the same time, yeah, like, when I was younger, even just the idea that someone would pick the best one that I didn't like was painful. Mm-hmm. Like I think when you got in the war and like, oh man, like, and you want to argue it or like, cause really what's happening is when someone likes something that you don't or vice versa, you have this, there's a sense that like, well, are they rejecting me or do I not get them? And then on top of it, and this is the thing that I think I struggle with the most now The longer I've spent actually working in Hollywood, the more I see the actual, like, real-life financial career opportunity impact the Oscars have, where I think some of the oversights or missteps, like, really have, like, real-world implications, you know, Um, and, and so I would say I now have a... They still have a grip on my heart, but I have a very tormented relationship with the
1: authors.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a really good answer, and and I I feel kind of similarly because the idea of saying that one movie is better than the other is ridiculous. You know, in and of itself, it's a ridiculous <laughs> question. But it's fun to rank things. It's fun, it's it, fun it, to rank things. And so I kind of like to look at it more as like a sociological study. I, you I know, think, why were yeah. these films nominated? Why do yeah. we care about these? And then and then, what does it mean for the people who made them?
1: And it kind of just gives like a... I mean, everybody likes to talk about movies. And it kind of gives mm-hmm. gives a reason, a structure in a way to... The Debate, yeah. Um, so let's talk about more movies. Let's movies talk about more
0: from the 20th century 1929, the first Oscar ceremony to 1999. Aleem, can you give us your uh, your top five movies of all time?
2: I can indeed. So, uh, I'm gonna go. Well, I, I guess I, I should be...
0: clarify. So, sorry to interrupt. It's not yeah. your five favorite movies of all time, it's your five favorite best picture nominees.
2: Exactly, that could be a little yes. bit different. Limited.
0: It does limit it, yes, yes,
2: it does. It does, um, so yeah, so. Uh, the five, if we're talking 20th century, that really immediately came to mind for me were uh, The Thin Red Line, mm-hmm. Pulp Fiction, Apocalypse Now, Lawrence of Arabia, and The Red Shoes. Uh, you know, and as I compiled those five movies, I, like you say, though, I had five that are equally important that are not even nominees for Best Picture. You know? yeah. And I think that that's really interesting.
0: That's fantastic. None of Here your picks are on either of our I top know, fives, which that, make it
1: so great. It would have been better if you put if you sque- if you squeezed Annie Hall in there somehow, because that was the one overlap that we had. But the trifecta. So those are just pretty heavy movies, you know. Thin Red Line, Apocalypse Now, pretty uh, pretty meaty. So what what do you what do you look for? What do you think? Why do you think those are on your list?
2: All of those movies are on my list. I think because while watching them, I had sort of like, this is going to sound very highfalutin, but like I had transcendent moments, Mm -hmm. which is to say, beyond just story, I had those moments where I was just caught up in the flow of like emotion. And I think, by the way, there's probably really funny and like, you know, uh, uh, movies that do that too that I could think of. But like when I think about the Thin Red Line or um, uh, like, or, or Pulp Fiction, or a positive. Now, like, there are just these moments where what's working on me is sound and music and a combination of images, and I couldn't even put into words what's happening, but a thing is happening that is like transporting me into a different sort of zone. And I will say that as a filmmaker and as a film fan, uh, I I want movies to do more than just tell me a story. Like, I want them to put me in that visceral mode because I also love novels. You know, and and I love comic books, which can tell stories a different way. I really crave those moments where I'm like, "Wow!" Like all the senses were activated here, and I kind of went into like whether it's a meditative state or a shock state or a poetic state, you know, or, or an or an adrenaline state. Like I like that mode.
1: Yeah, and that's I, the
0: power of movies, right?
1: It is. We talked about that multiple times too on the show. That I I want a movie that does something that only a movie can do. Because I agree, you know, novels do things that are great for me too, um, but when you can get it all working at the same time, it's it's pretty magical. Something
0: clicks, you yep. know, and it's like a weird sort of magic when all you know, all those things kind of come together at the right time and mm-hmm. something inside of you just it connects, you know, it's, it's, it's a good
1: thing. Indeed. All right, so let's go to E.T. Yeah. We've been teasing E.T. long enough. <laughs> um, so Aleem, do you want to start out by telling us about a scene and why you think it's great?
2: Yeah, so um, there are so many iconic scenes from E.T. You guys may you know, ha- have those on your list as well. Uh, but I was struck this most recent time watching it by the scene just before um, uh, E.T.'s sort of heart stops. Um, and it's the scene where these doctors and scientists are working to attempt to revive E.T., it's so good, and great. yeah. And when I watched that scene, I was there's a couple things that jumped out. The first one I sort of touched on, but I'll say it sort of more specifically now, which is to say, you know, Spielberg chose to film that with the with terms of the actors and their performances and the camera and the sound. He chose to film it in a way that you could imagine him filming an ER crisis scene that didn't involve an alien, and like just that choice, I thought was super powerful because. You know, what it's taking advantage of is we all are familiar with the idea of like the medical crisis scene. And he basically is like, I'm going to approach it like that. And so just that choice, as opposed to, you know, there's so many, like I think about movies today. And again, like I, I like a lot of the Marvel movies, but if this scene was in a Marvel movie, this government team would have had this like 40 inch flat-screen TV that they wheeled in that could do an exact anatomical 3D graphic of E.T.'s body. There would have been, like, a special science crew that could, like, scan him and analyze his DNA. But no, like, in this scene, we're, like, in a crowded, underlit, low-ceiling space with, like, uh, ill-fitting scrubs on the doctors, and, like, they're kind of sweaty and not organized, and they're just trying. And then when you think about how he enhanced it with his choices, like, he if you watch that sequence, I don't think there's a single shot that is what we'd call like in this film a clean shot, which is is it just the subject of the shot and no other bodies or pieces in the way of the camera. Mm-hmm. In that scene, like every time there's a shoulder moving, there's a tube flying, you know, when we do see Elliot, he's like halfway, but half on screen between like three or four bodies. And the thing I most noticed was that in my memory, we were cutting back and forth to seeing Elliot and then E.T., Elliot, E.T. But when I watched it, we go this long stretch with no reaction shot from Elliot or anyone else. It's just doctors in chaos. And I think, again, adds to the anxiety because we're like, we're, rem- we're just like watching, you know, as, especially as a kid, like I was watching adults, and I didn't know what adults were doing. Mm-hmm. And I'm not seeing the kid. I don't know what's happening. And then he, Spielberg said, sort of withholds it. He withholds it. And then they put the, the paddles on and they go clear. And it's this terrible moment where the body jerks from the, you know, from the paddles, from, you know, from the defibrillation. And then he cuts to Drew Barrymore for the first time, and she just, like, flinches when that happens. And because we haven't gone back and forth, like, seeing her was so, like, like new again, that I really felt, like oof, the emotional impact of that. And then we went right back into chaos, noise, overlapping dialogue. Um, and even the way the, the actors are performing, they're not really what we'd call, like, performing for the camera, which would say that they're not, like, opening the camera. They're not bothering to enunciate every word. They're acting in a realist way of like they're in crisis. They don't know what they're doing, and the total of all of that, I think, really is just this real like sense of anxiety that oh, as much as this has been a magical movie about like a little boy who discovers this alien who can you know eventually make him fly and all that, this is the room. I remember being like, oh, ET can die.
0: Yes, like Mm -hmm. that
2: can happen in this movie, and. It was really shocking to me as a kid, and I, I found it really impactful this time around, too.
0: Yeah, it's my favorite scene also. it All the choices that Spielberg is making there just punctuate the realness and, like you said, make you aware that death is real in the movie, and it's heavy. So you said that you watched this with your, your kids uh, six and nine. You said, I have an yeah. eight-year-old. And during this whole sequence, she just turns to me slowly with these sad eyes, and she says why did you suggest we watch this? <laughs> because there's real horror here, you know? And, yeah. and I just think that a lot of times you don't see that often in kids' movies where they kind of talk down to the kids. And this yeah. this is sort of like, here's your introduction, kids. Death is real, and not everything is yeah. happy all the time. Deal with it. Yeah.
2: My six-year-old, she asked a similar question here. Both of them were like talking about, yeah, is, you know, what's happening? Uh, so is, is he going to die? But my six-year-old just kept saying, what is happening? Mm. And I think what she was saying was, partially, yes, I think she couldn't quite believe that that could happen to the character, but part of it, I think, is, again, Silver's intent, I think what she was saying is, everything is so chaotic, I can't tell what's good news and what's bad news. I can't always tell if these adults are nice or mean to E.T. Yeah. E. Like, and I think that was part of the point of the scene, too, the way in which like this magical world of childhood is like invaded by adulthood. And I was struck by watching it now as an adult how much like less scary and more understandable I found the adult and realizing as a kid, I'm in a long time unsure if like, you know, is Peter Coyote a complete villain?
1: I don't know. You know, like
2: and yeah. I can see a little more as an adult. but I think on purpose he's constantly making it hard to get a handle on all of it because that's part of the experience.
1: This is also one of the reasons I think that the movie was so successful. It was the highest growing, highest grossing movie of all time worldwide until Jurassic Park, another Spielberg in 93. Um, And I think that's because the parents are more than happy to go to CET because it's so entertaining for an adult as well. My thought, the the image that struck me the most was, you know, you see these, uh, the orange sky uh, right before all this is happening. And these guys in the hazmat suits come mm-hmm. up over the over the horizon. and it yeah. looks like Stanley Kubrick, you know, yes, a, yeah. this alien kind of shot, mm-hmm. but they're all silhouettes. and it's like the adults mm-hmm. are the villains and and you don't really know. A lot of those uh, people in the the ER sort of scene were, actual medical people and they're saying real medical jargon, you know, they're not all actors. Mm-hmm. So I think that goes to that realism, that realistic style. I also wanted to mention just briefly how much the soundtrack just <laughs> knocked yeah. me over in this, in this movie. Um, and it kind of made me think that the the Spielberg, John Williams uh, combination, it feels like this is kind of like getting to peak movie experience with a soundtrack. Um, you start to like, I think sometimes this kind of overblown it's, it sort of feels like it's like overblown uh, symphonic kind of approach that is not really done as much now. I i wonder if it almost feels like they did it, they perfected it. So we can't really do the same thing anymore. That's kind of what was going through my mind. There's so much music going on, but it all seems so perfect and it, and it works. Um, Can so I just I wonder, say though, yeah, did,
0: Did you, there were a few times when I was watching this. You think it's too much. I I did feel, I I love. John Williams can do
1: no wrong. I (laughs) love
0: the theme. I think the music is all good, but I do think that it was a little bit overused. It's a lot of repetition with the E.T. theme. Mm -mm. But Mm. also, did you ever think while you were watching this that they felt like some of the songs um, kind of felt like Star Wars B-sides? (laughs)
1: Yeah. <laughs> there is some Star Warsy stuff. And yeah. actually during the Halloween scene where E.T is walking around with a uh, with the the sheet over him. Yeah. There is a little bit of an R2D2 flavor to it which is yeah. and the e. Hath- e. Is maybe Star conscious. Plus Yoda walks by. So, you yeah. know. And the astronaut's
0: breathe exactly like Darth Vader. Yeah. I yeah. I mean there are a lot of tie-ins.
1: There were. Yeah. Can I tell you that
2: when I when I was a kid like for me, Halloween had always happened at night. And so when I saw that image of <laughs> trick or treating in the day in California, yeah. I literally didn't know what was happening. It like that was almost as sci fi a moment as the rest of the movie.
1: <laughs> it's sorta of like it's sort of like seeing Christmas lights. With no snow. I mean, when I moved to Florida, you know, you're in California. What is this? That's not Christmas. You can't have Christmas lights in your house.
0: So I just want to say one more thing yeah. about we're talking about these heavy themes and the movie kind of introduces kids to death in a way. Um, but I also think that this movie is sort of blatantly about divorce in a, in a way also. Yeah. You know, Elliot's yeah. dad is, is not around. Um, mm-hmm. And I I've been watching... I don't. I don't. I guess I've been watching a lot of kids' movies lately, mm-hmm. and I. I feel like I'm noticing this. Tra- noticing. Noticing this as a trend, even in the early '90s. I Lots mean,
1: of I, Pixar movies have no mom or no dad. I really no, know. but
0: I, I'm saying that they dealt with divorce and the idea mm-hmm. of like a quote broken home and okay. death and stuff. More bluntly, even as recently as the 90s, I I watched Mrs. Doubtfire and Casper Mm. recently, and I was picking that out also. I mean, in Casper, the father works as like this ghost hunter just because Mm -hmm. his wife is dead. So he's like trying to find her in the Mm. afterlife, and they don't really draw attention to the fact that that's really sad. But <laughs> I thought it was. Yeah.
2: I think actually that, that there's like a casualness to like certain devastating details yeah. that is in a lot of 80s and 90s films. And then mm. I feel like in early 2000s, like I think there was maybe like we start to get some nuance. And then now I actually feel like that kind of specificity is not the dominant form of storytelling at all. Mm-hmm. Like it's almost like that's like too unique. Like there's such an attempt to paint this big, broad, global appeal kind of storytelling that they're almost like, I don't know, to have it be about us divorced parent and like, we're going to detail like she's in Mexico with that. Like that seems like too many details that would turn off, you know, this or that country quadrant, whatever. Like hmm. I do think those details were from a certain era of storytelling.
1: Yeah. Could be. So there's a couple of uh, tidbits of trivia that I wanted to oh boy talk about before we, before we close off here. Um, so this movie, I also have always associated with Reese's pieces, <laughs> of right? Yes. Of course. This is one of the early product placement movies. Um, and it wasn't going to be Reese's Pieces. It was supposed to be M&Ms, but they asked Mars company and they said, no. So they went to Reese's Pieces, led to a huge boom in Reese's Pieces. Um, but, um, uh, so anyway, we associated with Reese's Pieces. Also the screenwriter was Melissa Matheson. And, uh, she, um, first of all, she grew up in LA Her, she was a babysitter for Francis Ford Coppola, which I think is pretty cool. (laughs) Nice. Um, she was also the girlfriend of Harrison Ford, eventually got married and she was the screenwriter for this in part because Steven Spielberg was there on the set of Raiders of the Lost Ark in 1981, the year before that. And he's dictating basically the story to her and she eventually writes the screenplay. So I thought that was a pretty cool detail. Um, this is the movie with the longest ever theatrical run over a year in the theaters. Wow. That's pretty amazing. Uh, crazy. Corey Feldman was supposed to be in this movie. Every 80s movie. Of Come course. <laughs> you can't get enough Corey Feldman. But because his, his part got written out, Steven Spielberg put him in Gremlins um, uh. as sort of a, a favor. And uh, the last thing, and I wondered if any of you had, either of you had any experience with this, the Atari video game for oh, this movie yeah. was yes. the, one of the biggest... Flops ever, and thousands of these unsold cartridges went to the landfill. Did yeah, do you ever play the video game?
0: Oh, I have it, it's at my house <laughs> as really? we speak. Oh, yeah, it's, it's in the closet. Is I haven't it, played is it, in it in that while. fun. No, it's it's really confusing, <laughs> and I remember as a kid, it was it Just was like really the movie. hard. But it's confusing there's, for there's a, a kid. whole documentary just about this, really? about how nice. they, you know, E.T. sort of got blamed for Atari going down, <laughs> and they're in, they're in a landfill, and you had all of these people who like camped out at this landfill waiting for them to dig it up and hopefully find all of these E.T.s. I won't spoil it. I won't tell you if they found oh it or god, not. Oh god,
2: that sounds great. I love but, it. But
0: uh, yeah, I'll I'll try to find the um, the title of that movie while we're talking here. I can't nice. remember it off off the top of my mind.
1: Alrighty. Well, um, do we have any listener letters? Uh, we
0: got well. We, last week, we or online, I guess, we asked a few people on Facebook, Facebook.com/slash/best-picture-this, um, <laughs> to tell us a story about ET in their lives. How has ET impacted mm. their lives? And. It's a small one, but I think the best one of the group, Spencer Zerk, said that he went on E.T. the ride at Universal. And I think we've all been on that, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, And at the end, E.T. says, goodbye, whoever. You tell the the person at the front of the line (laughs) your name, and he'll say, goodbye, Brian. And his (laughs) sister Madison said, my name's Madison, went on the ride, had a great time. And then at the end, E.T. says, goodbye, Musashi. And messed up her name. <laughs> and she is still angry about it to this day. And she's in her mid-30s now.
1: How, how dare E.T. <laughs> oh, my God. Terrible.
0: Goodbye, Musashi. So, that um, is amazing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, Aleem, this has been awesome. Thank you very much. And, uh, uh, again, you can watch After We Leave on Amazon Prime. Um, uh, in the next episode on the show, we will begin our 2001 series. Uh, we'll reevaluate... Best Picture nominee Moulin Rouge it's a postmodern musical about a young writer named uh, played by Ewan McGregor and his love affair with the beautiful and dangerous Nicole Kidman directed by Baz Luhrmann
0: yes and that by the way that
2: is one of the greatest oversights of the best director Oscar
1: yes
0: yeah, I agree
2: it's Baz Luhrmann for that movie. I
1: totally yeah,
0: agree I, I have that in my notes to talk about next time so I'm glad you brought it up <laughs> uh, that documentary um, about E.T. and Atari that's called Atari Game Over uh, last I looked it was nice. on Netflix streaming so check that out uh, but yeah, oh, we yeah. want to hear from you guys. Uh, if you have any notes about this show, about ET, about anything, let us know. You can find us at bestpicturethis.com or on Facebook and Twitter at Best this. Thanks to WNZF and Mark Gilliland for producing. And also, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Thank you for listening. And for any corporate executives out there... Best Picture This is just like E.T. Open for any product product <laughs> placement. We'll take Reese's Pieces, M&Ms, anything you want. We're ready. Email us at bestpicturethis at gmail.com. How about Werther's Originals, Brian? Uh, yes, sure, all day, sure, anything, all day, anything. But I'll eat it on the st- on the on the sh- on the set. All right, kick it. Kick it.